you have a question about your home, call Ken the Contractor. It's amazing how far water will travel once it enters someplace on the roof. It, it, it's always surprised me. It's rare that you find a leak exactly where a hole may be or where there's a bad shingle, for example. So my, my guess is if you continue to fight this and you know your basement is dry, uh, that you've got a, a, a problem elsewhere. It's either from a plumbing line or it's coming from that roof. And since you know you have some roof problems, I'd venture to say when you re-roof that house, you're going to find the source and you're going to eliminate this. Do you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here to help you deal with the issues that are important to today's homeowner. If you'd like to join us, you can at any time at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. And right now, it's time to talk caulking. Yes, I said caulking. You're saying, boy, that's sort of like watching paint dry. Well, for an awful lot of you, it's very confusing. And that's why we're going to talk a little bit about caulking today. I had people ask me some basic questions. Can anyone apply caulking? That's pretty basic. And I want to tell you right off the bat, anyone can do it if you set your mind to it and you pay attention to some of the very basic items we're going to discuss here over the next few moments. Another common question I get is, Aren't they all the same? Why can't I just buy the cheapest product out there? All I'm going to do is cover up a crack or plug a hole in the wall somewhere. Folks, believe me, they are not all the same. And that's where part of the confusion comes in, I think, for so many of us when it comes time to go down to the hardware store and pick out caulking because we've got a little task to deal with at home. We are bombarded with names that may not mean much to us, starting with the names like acrylic latex caulk, painter's caulk, Adhesive caulk, roof repair caulk, how about asphalt joint caulk? The fact that the word caulk is in all of these doesn't mean that it's the same product. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the more common items here that are used around our houses that will help us. And not all products are made for the same finished products that we're trying to seal, if you will. So pay a little, pay attention to this and some of this will be back on the website also, kenthecontractor.com. If you miss all of this or you can't take notes as we cover it, some of the most common caulking compounds that we use around our household and that our builders have used in constructing our homes will be items like an acrylic latex caulk. Now, this is a caulk that can be used both indoors and outdoors, so it's fairly common. It works quite well when it comes to filling small joints in molding. This is something that you'll see painters use pretty frequently, among others, and things that we use to fill uh, joints at the top of our baseboard, perhaps in our door jams and so forth. The materials typically can be painted later in the day. If you apply it in the morning, it may take it five to seven, eight hours to completely cure, and it's ready to be painted. Also, for some of you that say, well, I really don't want to paint, this is one of the products that will come in different pigments. So you may find a tan or a gray or some other colors than white that blend quite nicely with your finished product and involves no painting whatsoever. This caulking is one that remains flexible, and if it's applied properly, it may last anywhere from 8 to 10, 12 years. Now, I want to talk just briefly about the application because with all of these, and I'm not going to touch on all of them, but I'm going to give you some common ones, prep is going to be very important. You hear me say that when we talk about painting. That holds true for caulking, that if you don't have old caulking thoroughly removed, if you're just caulking over caulking that's there, 
it's not going to last very long, regardless of what type you're using. So prep is important. Remove the old caulking. Be sure the surface is clean and free of all of the debris, grease, and oil, and moisture before you apply it. Let's talk about another one, the vinyl latex caulk, and that can be used in a variety of places. Also, that is common use, commonly used inside and out, and it, too, is good for similar gaps, just like the acrylic latex. They're made up of different compounds, so you're going to find they're used in similar applications. One, again, the first one was an acrylic latex caulk. This is a vinyl latex caulk. The vinyl latex typically costs less money, and it's not going to last as long. You may only see it lasting about three to seven years, depending on the exposure that it has. Then there's this thing we call painter's caulk. Everybody sees that because that's usually some of the cheapest stuff you see in the store, painter's caulk. This is very inexpensive. It is a latex, and we just talked about that. It's a latex caulk. Then painters use it to fill sometimes nail holes and other areas and small cracks, areas that are not subject to shrinking because this will shrink when it fully cures. And you don't want to see that little dimple after you've painted a surface because you used the wrong product when you should be using a putty over the nail holes. So it's not going to last extremely long if it's exposed to certain elements. It is typically an interior caulking compound. Now, some others that have the word caulk in them that are good both inside and out but not very user-friendly would be 100% silicone caulk. Silicone will hold up very well for a long period of time. It typically has some fairly strong VOCs in that, so it's going to have some off-gassing or an odor to it. Some of you may have issues with that. It works well on non-porous surfaces, products such as ceramic tile, glass, metal surfaces. And in many, it is mold and mildew resistance for the most part. If something's on the surface of it, that can still mold, but the product itself is resistant to that. One thing you need to know about silicone is it typically does not bond to wood. So, again, you need to read the label, whether you're looking at a latex or a siliconized acrylic caulk or a vinyl latex or 100% silicone to see what surfaces you are trying to seal. Some other items that have the name in it that really are not a true caulk for interior use especially, and this one would be a dead giveaway, how about an asphalt caulk for joint fill? This is pretty common for those of you that have asphalt driveways. You may seal these driveways from time to time, and that's great. That will help preserve the drive itself, but when you get cracks in those, you don't want water getting underneath it and into the base. So this asphalt caulk comes in a gun, is something that you typically can apply yourself. In some cases, you'll actually find it in a bottle where you snip the top of it off, and it will have an opening similar to a caulking tube, but you can apply it to the joint itself, and it's self-leveling. It'll do a very good job. One other item that's in the caulk category that uh, occasionally many of us will have to rely on, and that is a masonry or concrete repair caulk. Again, the word is used there, but it's not the same product when we think about painting. And this is designed specifically to be used in mortar joints that have hairline cracks in them, or perhaps where a small amount of mortar has come loose and you don't want to have to go buy a full bag just to touch that up. Also, joints that we have in concrete. And the primary purpose of this, again, is to keep water out. In some cases, it's going to improve the appearance of it. It's a cosmetic thing. But you certainly want to keep the water out, which can cause a great deal of damage in both concrete surfaces and your brick and stone surfaces, especially for those of you that live in an area where you're subject to freezing in the wintertime. That water will expand. It'll pop more of this out. And eventually, you're going to have a major problem with your masonry or concrete areas. So these are some things you can think about that will help you around the house. One last item could be very important, 
is called a roof repair caulk. Now, most of these that I'm familiar with can be applied both in dry and wet applications, and that's key. If you happen to have an emergency situation, you've got a leak and you're in between showers, it just hasn't dried up, but you need to deal with it right now, a roof repair caulk can be very beneficial because you can get up on a ladder and you can take care of it even in a wet scenario. So think about it. Not all caulks are the same. They're not all right for every application. Read the label. Don't just look at the price. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's right here ready to help you with that project you're going to be working on this weekend or maybe just a nagging problem that you'd like to get taken care of once and for all. You can reach Ken by giving us a call at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975 or email your questions to KenTheContractor.com. Coming up this hour on Ken the Contractor, about a half hour from now, in our In the News segment, Ken's going to tell you about a new dual USB 110-volt wall outlet charger. That's coming up this hour on this edition of Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Have a question about your home inside or out? Give Ken a call, 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can forward him an email question at Ken, KenTheContractor.com. It's Robert who joins us right now. Robert, hi, you're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Hey, how y'all doing today? Good. Hi, Robert. How can we help you? I was wondering about composite decking the boards. Uh, I have access to Evergreen brand of the composite decking, uh, what do you think of it? Would you use it versus concrete? Or I have used so many different deck products. I will tell you that in recent years, the products have been, I guess, modified by some companies that I used years ago to the point that I would have to say that most everything I've used has been pretty respectable. Depends on what you're looking for now. You're talking about, just for our audience standpoint, you're talking about redoing a deck or building a new deck? Uh, no, it's an old front porch. It's on an old application, and I'm not real sure about the framing under it, but if the framing is good, on, it's on an old farmhouse. If the framing is good, I want to just go ahead and put it back down over that. All right, yeah. If it's structurally sound, I would agree with you. And if you use some type of a composite deck, now you have other options. Uh, but what you're talking about, in my experience, is a decent deck material. You're going to find decks for you and for the benefit of our listeners that are that just run the scale from vinyl to aluminum to primarily wood fiber composite to vinyl materials and composition of all of those together. There's so many things in the marketplace. It's a little bit like caulking and paints. There's such a variety out there that it can be confusing these days. So one of the things I would suggest you do is first examine your substructure. Be sure that it's fine. And then secondly, take a look at the finish that you want. If this is exposed, and since it's an exterior porch, you've got a roof over it. Maybe you don't have as much exposure as you do with an open deck, but you want something probably that's relatively non-slip. You want something that you're not going to have to paint year after year. You want something you can put down one more time and probably live with it and say that's it, I assume. Yes, sir, that's right. Uh, would you recommend, would, what do you think of Evergreen? Are you familiar with that brand? With the brand, yeah. I've used Evergreen in a limited uh, application. I also would suggest you you look at several other brands because there are some that produce similar products. You can look at Evergreen. You can look at Trex. You can look at two or three others that are in the marketplace. But I wouldn't settle on just one till I've examined several others, looking again at the properties, the characteristics, mold and mildew resistance, slip resistance, expansion coefficients. Some of the products, not just Evergreen, but Trex and others, have more 
they expand and contract more than others do. And I don't know your particular scenario, if you're going wall to wall or if this is just from a wall out in every case. You want to be sure that it's the right application for you. And then once you narrow that down, this is what I would do, and this is what I advise clients to do. Don't just look at one brand, but look at at least two or three and then narrow that down to the product within the brand that you really like, the texture, the color, the finish, uh, whether it's a concealed fastener, whether it's a surface fastener, uh, and then make some decisions. Okay, I want these three, and then let's get some pricing on them. Because if you don't do that, you may find that as soon as you buy a product, and I take nothing away from Evergreen, but you want to be sure you're satisfied with that. And the only way you'll know that for sure is to examine some of the other options in the marketplace and to obtain pricing. There, because there's just, I can't sit here and describe to you all the variations. I go to International Builder Show and other places and I see things that just boggle my mind and that I haven't even worked with in spite mm-hmm. of the, the dozens of products that I have. So in your market, in your locale where you live, see what's available and be sure you're happy with that finished product. But with the products there today, you can do it one more time and live with it and not mess with it again. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Appreciate your call. Thanks for listening. Bye. Appreciate your call. If you'd like to join us, you can at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can send us an email question. We're going to reach out to Alabama to get an email question. We're going to go to Gerald in Athens, Alabama. And this is similar to what we just talked about, but in a different, uh, with a different product. And it's very short, very simple. He says, do vinyl fences become brittle over time? Very good question. Just as we talked about composite decking and the different types of deck materials that are there, they have different characteristics and different qualities about them and performance. That holds true with vinyl fencing materials. And, Gerald, as I constantly say, most of us are driven by price point. And that's not always a good thing. Sometimes we get exactly what we pay for. When it comes to vinyl fencing, that's typically the case. You want to ask some questions. You want to read some of the technical data. If you're having this installed, you want to deal with your installer face-to-face, and you want to find out, does the vinyl fencing you're about to buy, does it have UV protection built into it? Not all of them do. The sunlight is the probably the, one of the biggest enemies we have to the exterior of our homes and our yards, whether it's paint, vinyl fencing, roof, whatever it may be that the UV light tends to break these products down. Also, if you are, and I know you are not living in Athens, Alabama, but people that live listen to us that are in the extreme northern conditions where it will be very cold for a longer period of time, even products that typically are not very brittle, they will become more brittle in a cold environment. That doesn't mean that it's a bad product. But the long and short, Gerald, for you is that some vinyl fences can become brittle over time. They're certainly going to become more brittle in cold environments. And you want to ask the questions of not only the installer, but the manufacturer. You want to read the literature and see how they're rated before you start writing that check. All right. Let's try to sneak in a quick call from Glenn. Wants to talk about uh, driveways. Glenn, go right ahead with your question for Ken the Contractor. Hi there, Ken. Hi there. Uh, I've got a small driveway asphalt that I need to uh, put a sealer on. And do they make different varieties now or compounds? They do, and, and, and that, that's an important question. A lot of folks don't think about that. I'm glad you are. You're going to find two that are very common, and they're going to be one water-based. The other one's going to be oil-based. Now, the water-based sealer for asphalt typically costs less money. 
It's more user-friendly. It's the type of thing we would normally buy in most of the big box stores and apply ourselves. The oil-based is may not be as easy to find at some of the standard retailers, but it's going to last longer. It's going to be more difficult to clean up, and if you get it on your clothes or other items, you're probably going to be throwing them away. That is more often used by professionals than homeowners, but those are the two types you'll find most common. Okay. Oh, so you recommend the oil-based? For what I'm using, even in the in the commercial world, when I have something sealed, a, a, par, a professional uh, by a professional, a commercial parking lot, I like the oil-based product that's out there. Okay. Uh, it lasts longer. It does a better job. It will take it longer to cure, and it's a little harder to find. Well, the other question I've got is, uh, saw a neighbor putting down with roller. Uh, I this is the first time for many years I've had a asphalt uh, part of a driveway, but uh, they've used a roller on it. And I, before I'd use the squeegee, which which uh, the squeegee is probably going to allow you to cover that with a thicker mill coating than the roller will. And if if I were doing this myself, I would tend to use the squeegee. But it depends on the product to read the side of the can because they're going to give you the recommended application method. Right. Okay. All right. That will. Uh, oh. Does it, uh, five gallon usually they come in five gallon containers. Typically five gallons, and you'll have to read the side depending on the product for the coverage, and it's going to vary quite a bit. You may some as, see some as limited as 150 square feet to the gallon, and others going on up to 300 or more per gallon. Glenn, thank you. We do appreciate it. Good luck with the project. If you'd like to join us, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And remember, uh, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's here to help you with that home improvement project or just to answer a basic question about your home inside or out. You can reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. It is Candy who joins us right now. Candy, hi. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Good afternoon, Ken. Hi there. Uh, let me explain quickly the situation that we have here at our home. When we built our home 20 years ago, we uh, incorporated everything uh, in the home except the installation of a deck uh, that, in theory, is supposed to wrap around to a screened-in porch. The roof is already pitched for that. And, in fact, we already have the electrical uh, unit to put in a ceiling fan. We're at the point now where we want to do that, and uh, we're trying to decide between vinyl versus pressure-treated wood, I believe, for the deck, and whether or not to make the screened porch now an enclosed all-season room. Uh, so, number one, vinyl versus pressure deck. And let me tell you, we're lazy people, so we don't want to have to do this painting thing every year. And secondly, from a value standpoint, would it be better to make now that originally was the screen porch an all-season room? All right, let's take both these parts and see if I can help you out. First, I think you've answered part of your question because you told me you're a lot like I am. You're basically <laughs> you're, you're basically lazy when it comes to maintenance, and, I, and I'm yeah. all for having our house finished one time and do as little as possible thereafter so you can enjoy other things in life. Well, I'm 60 and my husband's 61, so there you go. All right. Well, again, I think you've answered your own question, but I'm going to reinforce that so that I can bring the two of you together on this. 
you've got two things going for you if you look at any of the composite decks, the vinyl decks or other maintenance-free materials. There are so many products in the marketplace that I don't want you to be hung up on just one. If you haven't done any investigating in this, I want you to look at multiple brands and different types of finishes, textures, colors, and fastening systems, whether they're surface-mounted or whether they are concealed fasteners, as I talk about occasionally. Make sure well, you... that's the confusion that we're at. We've done some research, and we've, we're just bombarded with information, and we don't know where to go. All right. Well, you're also, if, you, if you're like most of us, too, you're going to be driven to some extent by price point, and some, exactly. of the, some of these will be very, very expensive. So I would take a look at the dollars and cents that I've got available, that I'm willing to spend, and say what fits within my, my overall okay. budget, assuming you have a real budget, what fits. Yeah. Now, everything you look at is going to be more costly than just basic pressure-treated. The pressure-treated yeah. material will offer more maintenance year after year. It's more prone to mold and mildew. And to, if you nail it, especially to nails backing out, you can use good fasteners and not have the kind of issues that you do with nails. But you still have twisting, cupping, splitting, you know, all kinds right. of things with the wood. So I really, for you, would rule that wood out. And so you, you definitely want to be looking at some type of a composite, whether it is a composite board or whether it is a, a, a full vinyl that's there or a vinyl-coated board. And okay. they will perform differently. Some expand and contract more than others do. Some are more prone to mold and mildew. Some are, are slippery. Others are more slip-resistant. That's where okay. you have to apply some things that you're really looking for. And I wouldn't think about so much selling this later. Think about how you're going to live in that house and that deck. What's right for you? Because if it's oh, okay. right for you, somebody else is going to be happy with it at a later date as well. It will okay. it will add more value to the home. It will make it more appealing when it comes time to sell the home than having a standard pressure-treated deck out there. Okay. But this is where it goes back to your budget. So eliminate some of the confusion by saying, I don't have to look at everything in the marketplace because, frankly, I don't want to spend the money for some of these highest-end items out here. Okay. So okay. limit that. It's, it's like paint. Okay. Sometimes when we pick paint, we've got 10,000 colors to choose from. If we only had 15, it'd be a lot easier. Okay. And so decking's the same way. But I think that's the direction you need to go in. Okay. Now, what about converting this uh, uh, screened-in porch to an all-season all room? Is that worth the extra money, or, again, does that come back to what how we choose to live in it or at, the, at this point, it really depends on how you live there. When you and others convert a porch to a four-season room, if you don't have the bottom side insulated and protected, then really you're not doing yourself a lot of justice because you're saying for four in the fourth season, that coldest time, that winter, I'm going to heat this. Now I have no insulation in the floor. I may not have any insulation in the ceiling because it was designed as a porch. What's most common and would be a little more cost-effective would be to do a three-season room, and these can be done with sliding panels, removable panels, so you have full screen in the summer and the spring. And in the, the fall, perhaps you've got a, a plastic or a semi-insulated panel you pop in that slides like sliding doors. There are a lot of systems out there, but it says you're not likely to be there in the winter months. If you're going to be there in the winter months, you need to invest in more than just your wall panels. You need to look at both roof insulation, and you need to look at floor insulation. So your expense well, is going to go up considerably. Well, the roof is insulated, but that's all we have is the pitched roof. We did that, you know, when they built it. So Everything you, else is just blank. It's just 
like you walk out the sliding glass door that we have in place and you fall down. <laughs> yeah, well, your, your, your cost is going to go up. So, again, I think it goes back to how okay. you live in the home. Do you need to expand from that interior space and see yourself in the winter months living out there? If you do, then I think it would be a good investment if it works with your budget. I would be doing that if I saying that I wanted to move outside a little more into this more open area during January, February, March. So I think those are some things you just have to sit down and put on paper and uh, you and your husband work through. And I'm sure you'll come up with the right decision. Candy, thank you. Good luck with the project. Yeah, time for us to sneak in this week's edition of In the News, where Ken brings products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance, purchases, remodeling, and new construction. Leviton is a name we're all familiar with. Most of us have switches and outlets scattered through our house manufactured by this company. One of the things they've hit the market with recently, and it's not a new product, but it's an upgraded product, so it's new to them, is a USB charger and receptacle combination. This is a 15-amp electrical receptacle, 125-volt, with a 2.1-amp dual USB charger. Now, why is that important or different from others? In many cases, when these first hit the market, we'll see a USB charger available to plug in, but only one of them. This is a dual unit. The other thing that's unique about this from Leviton is that, like everything else today, it's got a computer chip and a wall outlet, and we don't typically think about that. It actually determines exactly what kind of charging rate and capacity your particular device needs. It's got what's called a smart chip, and it recognizes the optimum or optimizes the charging requirements for your device. Some of these can be charged quicker than through your standard charging device. Others uh, certainly will can only allow you to charge one at a time. Here you can charge two at a time. You can get rid of the unsightly cords and chargers and use your standard USB plug connection. Now, this works typically with many items in the market, but especially the iPad, the iPhone, tablets, mobile phones, smartphones, even the Nintendo 3D and PlayStation and so forth. So you've got a number of items that will plug into these and what you'll find is it will eliminate some of the wiring issues that you have around the house. It also, this is a tamper resistant, so people can't play with it, modify it. You can't mix up or mess up the line voltage, the transformer on the back side of it. And what I like about it is it really understands what you got plugged into it. So it optimizes the opportunity to speed up the charging on that. Sells for about $26. One of those items most of us can do ourselves if we turn the breaker off and we're safe with electricity. And this is ideal for home and office. Just hit the market recently, Leviton USB. It's a dual charger and 15-amp, 125-volt receptacle, and it fits in your standard wall box. And that's week, that's this week's edition of In the News with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken, you can always reach him at 800-614-2975 and email your questions to our website, kenthecontractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. If you have a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor, reach him at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. You can also email him questions to kenthecontractor.com. Time now for this week's edition of One-on-One with Ken the Contractor. Each week, Ken brings you information about products and services from companies and experts he interviews during his travels to make your life better, provide options, and save you money. My next guest is Rick Williams. Rick is an agent with the Rockingham Group. Rick, welcome to the show. I can. In the past, we have talked about standard insurance policies and, and how premiums will vary for homeowners depending on what type of structure they have and where they may live. I want to talk for just a moment about special riders that may be required that many times either we as a homeowner 
don't think about asking or we assume is covered under our base policy. In some cases, our agent doesn't tell us. Talk to us a little bit about some of these special riders that we should be considering. Two things that come up a lot. One are business exclusions in a homeowner's form. More and more people are working from their home. They have offices in their home, consultants, agents, salespeople, whatever. Have a conversation with your agent about that if that's your situation because there are exclusions for clients coming on your property, potentially delivery people delivering business-related goods to your property. There could be some iffy situations there in the event of a injury or a claim. And the second one are motorized vehicles. Uh, riding lawnmowers, four-wheelers, even little powered kitty cars. Once those items leave your residence premises, there is no coverage either for the item or if you injure another party. So, And that's the one that I see. You know, a lot of situations where people, they're not aware of that and they're taking their ATV trail riding or, or they're, they're going down the neighbor to going down the road to plow a neighbor's garden as a favor and you know, typically nothing's going to happen. But should it happen, there's an exclusion in the policy that says, sorry, there's no coverage for that. And most of us would assume that it's covered because yeah. it's a home item. Typically, we use it around our house, but yet here we are using it off-site. Well, and most of us, we don't even think about it. You know, Saturday morning and Mrs. Smith down the road, she's early, she needs her lawn mowed, so we, we jump on the mower and we go down, we haul it down there in our pickup truck and we jump off and unload it and we mow her grass and we've done a good deed and 99% of the time nothing happens and everything's good, but, you know, there are, there are all those occasions where someone gets hurt and then there's no coverage. Given the events across this country this year, trees that are on adjacent property that blow over on your property and damage your home or automobile, who's liable for that, your neighbor's policy or your policy? Normally, in most circumstances, it would be the whoever owns the property that is damaged. That's where the coverage is, unless the person who owns the property that the tree fell from if they were aware, you know, if it was a dead tree and it was obvious that it was a danger, that it should have been dealt with, then they could potentially be held liable. Or if they were, for example, if they were out in the backyard and they were had the chainsaw out and they cut the tree down themselves and, oops, it fell in the wrong direction, then in that case it would be, you know, up to the to that person's insurance. But f- from wind, 99% of the time, if the neighbor's tree falls on your house, we'll have to file the claim under your policy. Interesting insurance facts for all of us to think about, things we need to be aware of when we're renewing or purchasing new. And maybe for some of us, we should be pulling that policy out of the file drawer and actually reading it to see what coverage we have and what coverage we may need. Good idea. Rick, I certainly appreciate you joining us today. We always appreciate the feedback you have for us. Thanks, Ken. And, you know, uh, we've got uh, fire safety coming up, and that's a good time of year, according to professional firefighters, to go check. And when you change the clocks to make sure that you've got batteries that are working in your smoke detectors. And I talked with a local insurance agent recently, same type of thing. You ought to set some regular intervals where you go back and review your policies, as you were talking about, to make sure that you've got the appropriate amount of coverage or if something's changed, that you've adjusted that coverage. Well, and that's the reason I bring Rick and others to the air to talk about items we don't frequently think about. And I'll tell you, as long as I have been doing this, there's still things that just slip through my mind and items that, frankly, I never think about. Rick just brought one up, for example, taking your your mower down the road with your trailer and all. Uh, your mower may be insured if you have an accident around the house on your own yard, but if you have an accident at your neighbor's house or you hurt someone, you're not going to be covered. That homeowner's insurance doesn't transfer. So there are little things like that that we think are just, as he says, simply good deeds. We're trying to do people a favor, and 99.9 times out of 100, there's never an issue. But if one develops, all of a sudden we pick the phone up, call our homeowner's insurance only to find, hey, sorry, guy, you didn't have coverage for that. Or for many of us that have ATVs that we might take off the farm or from around our yard or use in other places, if you don't have specific coverage for that, 
You just don't have coverage for it. And we may think because when it's put in as part of our homeowner's policy, it's covered for theft or damage or fire on our own home site that it's covered. It's just not. So I like to bring these things to air to remind all of us, starts with me and some of the rest of you, that we do need to pull that policy out and read it occasionally and talk to our agent. I've got time to uh, clear up a couple of emails. What's our first one? All right. Bart comes to us out of Virginia. said, is it true that it does no good to put more than R11 into a wall space? Well, Bart, that's not a simple answer. If you've got a three-and-a-half-inch stud cavity, you can go a little higher than that. Now, that's the thickness of the wall stud. Typically, you can install an R13 insulation, and, and the R is a resistance value. For those of you that don't know, and the higher the R value in insulation, the better thermal value you have. So if you can go from an R11, which has been typical around this nation for a few decades, and bump that to an R13, it's going to cost you just a little more in material, not any more in labor or time, and you're going to have just a little more resistance, so you're going to preserve some of that heat that you're generating on the inside or keeping that heat from coming in during the summer months from the exterior. For those of you that have wall stud cavities that are made up of two-by-sixes in your framing, then you certainly, I would want to increase that to at least an R19. Now, when we're talking about it, it's not just the R value, meaning that you have a higher resistance, but the insulation becomes thicker. And to go back maybe to what Bart's really addressing here is compressing insulation. If you happen to have a three-and-a-half-inch standard two-by-four stud cavity and you want to put an R19 in it, you're not doing yourself any favors. If you can compress it to fit that cavity, and you probably can because it's a six-inch insulation and you could compress it down, you're defeating the purpose. The more dense this is, you actually lose resistance or R-value in insulation. So you never want to compress insulation beyond its design thickness, at least not of any substance. It may hit an occasional piece of blocking or wire. That's not a big issue. But you certainly don't want to fill an entire wall cavity with it and compress it down to three and a half inches because you've wasted a lot of money for that insulation. It just isn't serving any purpose to you. So the bottom line is... I would install what I can get in a wall cavity that's proper for the wall thickness and the thickness of the insulation, Bart. If you'd like to forward your question to Ken, you can always email our website, which is kenthecontractor.com. And we always do like to remind you uh, that when you're undergoing any particular type of uh, project, whether it's a remodeling project or a simple home improvement project, always look for those products that are made in America. We are a firm believer in made in America, and I think more and more manufacturers understand the importance of that to people in this country as you're seeing American flags not only on their boxes, on the plastic packaging. In some cases, in many stores, you're seeing a little American flag even on the label at the point of sale. So American manufacturers are producing things that we want. They're producing quality that we want. They want us to know that they're produced in America. And for an awful lot of us, we're old enough that we can remember when foreign-made products just were not uh, the best, and then all of a sudden foreign-made products became the best, and American-made products not so hot. Let me assure you, as a builder, purchasing thousands and thousands of products, we are doing all we can to buy American products because we're seeing pricing, we're seeing competitive we're seeing them produce products that are superior to what we're buying in other parts of the country or the world. And, folks, what we're doing is keeping people employed, and we're keeping our dollar local. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. 
You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.